Well, let's open up to Psalm 86 this morning. There really is a simplicity to living the Christian life. It's found in Hebrews 12. Keeping your gaze fastened upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And now look, look at him seated at the right hand of God. You're going to end up there too if you are in Christ. That is the glory of the Christian life. And so we cling to him. Keep our gaze fastened upon him. Well, just a little review from last week. We noted last week we're just doing two weeks here on the theme of corporate worship, worshiping together as the body of Christ. Last week we noticed from John 4 that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Where will God get these worshipers from? Do they make themselves? Does God sit back in heaven on his throne with his arms folded waiting for people to finally decide they're going to worship him? No, God goes out. He goes to work to redeem men in mercy to turn them into worshipers. This is what Paul says. In Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore, by God's mercies, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, and that is your spiritual service of worship, the presentation of your bodies. And why present them? On the basis of the mercies of God. God has shown us mercies so that we will present our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice. He has purchased them, and in that, that is our spiritual service of worship. It is acceptable to God. It is a holy sacrifice. That is what God has redeemed us for. But will God be content with many scattered individual worshipers? Is this his intent? And we saw last week from 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 5 that God redeems not just individuals. He redeems a people. That this people, this holy nation would show forth the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we ask the question, what is worship? And what is corporate worship? Worship is our offering up to God the responses that he is worthy of. We saw that in Psalm 96. And corporate worship is our offering up to God the united spiritual responses that he is worthy of, that he alone is worthy of. And we saw that from Psalm 96 from 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. So two brief implications, and then we're going to get started on the weight of corporate worship and then the elements of corporate worship. Two implications from what we've seen so far. First of all, God is the object of worship. So that means that the primary purpose of worship is not evangelism. We do not construct our worship services in order to reach the lost. We don't shape corporate worship even to serve our own interests. Why do we gather together to sing and pray and study God's word? Is the primary purpose so that I can have a spiritual boost to get me through this next week? Is it primarily my needs that are served when we gather together? God is the object of corporate worship. We gather together to worship him. And that is why we come together. And yet, that is not at all to say that worship does not benefit us. When we contemplate the grandeur of God, when we look at his great perfections, 
his glorious being, when we consider that in Christ, this God and all that he is, is for us and not against us, that every one of his attributes is trained upon us for our good and not for evil, we respond to that God, we offer up our worship to him. What does that response look like? What does it really look like when someone is worshiping God for who he is? The best word that I can come up with to describe that, looking at all that God is in Christ, all of that is for me. I offer up to him then my worship and my praise. What does that worship and praise look like? The best word that I can come up with is the word satisfied. Worship comes out of hearts filled with satisfaction. Satisfied that he's God and not me. Are you content that he's God and not you? Are you content that he's the one who orders your life circumstances? Or do you want to take that wheel and drive the car yourself? Worship, what is a God who is all glorious, all sovereign, all knowing, all wise, filled with love? What kind of a response should we give to that God? Okay, Lord, it's okay you're in charge. I'll just be quiet and let you do it. I'm completely satisfied that you're in charge. I can sit down and rest in that. Satisfied by his love, rejoicing in his great beauty and grandeur, finding all that we need in him and through him for Jesus' sake. In that moment, when we sit before God, joyful and satisfied in all that he is, in that moment, God is most glorified by us. When we sit satisfied before him. But the second implication of this is that we've got to know God if we are to worship him. If worship is offering up to God the responses he is worthy of, then who is he and what is he worthy of? What responses must I give to him? What would it mean, for example, to say this? What if you encountered somebody and you said, do you worship God? Yeah, I worship God. I worship the God who's not sovereign over this world. He has nothing to do with my choices. Everything that, God, that happens in this world, it's all up to me, and God just sits back to wait and see what I'll do. I worship God. That's the God I worship. That's called idolatry. That's called making up a God in my own mind who looks like what I want him to look like and then bowing down before him and worshiping him. How's that any different from primitive cultures who make up a God out of wood and stone that they think he should look like and bowing down to him? We've got to worship God according to what he actually is, a sovereign God, a loving God. And in order to worship him properly, then we've got to know him. We must know God as he truly is from the scriptures if we are to render to him the responses that he alone is worthy of. And that means that every element of worship must speak to us first about who God is and what he has done before it calls me to respond to that. In other words, the dominant theme of worship is look at God, who he is, what he's done, and then how should I respond to him? Well, we just sung a a hymn of response. If God is who he is, then get out of here, unbelief. I'll trust in him. But we don't sing that until we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what God has done to win our confidence. And so two implications here. God is the object of worship and we must know God if we are to worship him truly. 
So let's look at the weight then of corporate worship. By this I mean, what is so significant about corporate worship? How is it different from individual worship? Why does God desire corporate worship and not simply all of us individually worshiping in our homes? And there's two answers that I can find to that question in the scripture. And the first one is in Psalm 86, where you've turned to. Uh, we'll look at verses 8 through 10. Psalm 86, verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. There's two different ideas that we see in these verses. The first is that God is unlike any other God. The one that we worship is totally different. And in fact, the psalm and all of the psalms put their finger on this fact. There's actually only one God. That's how he's different. He's the only one who really is a God. So that's one theme that we see here. God alone is God. But what happens on earth if he's God alone? Verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, because you are great and do wondrous things, because you alone are God. So two different themes here. God alone is God. And the nations come, all of them come and worship before him. Now, this is a surprising statement that all the nations would come and worship before Israel's God. And here's why. Because ancient peoples believed that gods were tribal. Meaning, as you read through your Bible, you find this out. The Moabites had their God, Chemosh. And the Philistines had their God, Dagon. And the Israelites had their God, Jehovah. And that's the way that they thought of their gods. And Chemosh only has jurisdiction and power over the Moabites. If Moabite people travel over into Israel's territory, Chemosh can't help them because he's only God of the Moabites in their territory. This is what you see when the Syrians come to attack Israel. And the Syrians say, look, Israel's God, he dwells up there in Jerusalem on top of the mountain. That's where his temple is. So he must be a God of the mountains. So if we can lure the Israelites down into the valleys, their God can't help them and we'll beat them down there. And so for the psalm to say, all the nations are going to come and worship before you. Israel's God. What does that say about Israel's God? It shows that he's not just a tribal deity. He's actually God over all the earth. And so when all the nations gather together to worship this God, it says there is only one God. And this God is the one who is God over heaven and earth. And this is exactly what we've seen the church is. The church is a conglomerate, a combination of all of the nations. What does it say when people in Europe and Africa and Australia and North America all worship the same God? It shows that he is God over all the earth. What happens in Brisbane when we have Chinese people and African people and European people and American people and Australian people all come together in one building to worship one God? It shows he's God over all those peoples. He is the God of all the earth. And so what's so significant and weighty about corporate worship? It is that it shows he is God alone. Why did only some people watch the coronation of King George? Did you watch the coronation of King George? Why didn't you do that, Barbara? Because he's not your king. <laughs> he's only the king 
of Britain? Or is it England? Is he king of England or king of Britain? I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> I'm not part of that. Why do only some people watch the coronation of King George? Because he's only the king of those people. Now, what about if the whole world watched the coronation of King George and they all bowed down before him? What does that say about King George? He's Lord of all the, world, all the earth. What happens when all the earth, or at least representatives from all the earth, gather together in the church? Every nation and tribe and tongue. This is where it's all heading. It's all heading to gathering around one throne because there is only one throne. But we get to start on that today. As many nations gather together in the church to worship one God. Corporate worship manifests that he is God alone. Let's turn to Romans chapter 15 to look at the second significance of corporate worship. When we gather together to worship God corporately, what does that show? It shows, first of all, that he is God alone. Romans chapter 15 shows us a second weight of corporate worship. Romans 15 will begin in verse 5. Though we could go back and start in 14.1. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. What kind of harmony? Well, that's what he's been talking about in chapter 14 and 15. And we'll discuss that here in just a little bit. May the God of endurance grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Why? Why live in harmony? So that, verse 6, together you may have, you may with one voice, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And when you welcome one another, what's the result? What's the purpose? For the glory of God. Okay? So do you see the two different themes that we're seeing there? We're seeing the theme of worship, right? Glorifying God with one voice, praising His name. There's corporate worship. Lots of people together, one voice. What's the other theme we see here? Look at verse 5. Living in harmony, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. The first theme is glorifying to God together with one voice. That's corporate worship. But as you read the chapters of Romans 14 and 15, you will discover that all of those who were worshiping together in Rome with one voice, they were composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Jew and Gentile, how well do they get along? Not well. And Romans 14 addresses matters of difference between Jews and Gentiles. These matters of difference, such as whether or not we eat pork. We've got pork in the, in, in the oven right now. Sorry for the smell. It's making you hungry. If we had Jewish believers over, it'd be a matter, uh, are they going to eat the pork with us or not? Because God said not to in the Old Testament. How did Jew and Gentile believers then live in a church together with, in harmony? That's what Paul's addressing in Romans 14 and 15. And these, dis the, these matters of difference were creating disputes in the church. There was friction and strife. The Jewish Christians were looking down on the Gentile Christians as lesser Christians because they weren't keeping the Mosaic law. They aren't nearly as mature as we are. God has shown us how this is supposed to work. Jewish believers, on the other hand, were being emboldened by the Gentiles to disregard their consciences and to eat as the Gentiles did. And as a result, look at chapter 14, verse 20. As a result, the work of God was being destroyed. 
And Paul's admonition to them then is to chapter 15, verse 1. We are to bear with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. His plea, look at 14, verse 1. His plea is to welcome one another, but not for the purpose of quarreling. His plea, according to chapter 15, verse 7, is the same. Therefore, welcome one another. Rather than disputing, open up your arms and welcome one another. Put aside those differences and receive one another. Why? Because Christ has received you. And he received them. And so you are one body now in Christ Jesus. Jew and Gentile in one body. So welcome them as Christ has received you. In other words, Christ's work has brought together a body that doesn't agree on everything. There are some differences that they could dispute about. And Paul says, receive one another, but not for the purpose of disputing over those things. Questions like, do we celebrate the Day of Atonement? Do we eat pork? Do we celebrate Easter and Christmas? Are we allowed to eat and drink certain foods? And Paul says, Christ has created a unified body, so don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God, he says. In this context, Paul says, in the context of all of this, he says, may God grant you to live in harmony. Chapter 15, verse 5. May God grant you in the midst of those differences to live in harmony. Why? Because corporate worship, when we come together and worship, manifests that unity. When we receive one another and the center of our church is God himself, and Jesus Christ and our personal differences do not impede our coming together. When we all gather together around one thing, whatever that one thing is, that's the big thing. How do we make it big? By gathering together around that one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so when we gather together to worship God and not our own selves, not our own preferences. When we set those aside and Jesus Christ becomes the center, what does corporate worship manifest? It manifests the unity of the spirit. The fact that there's an underlying spiritual reality here that is not visible, but it's so powerful, it can overcome even the differences between Jew and Gentile and unite them together in one body. And so corporate worship manifests the unity of the Spirit. Why does God desire corporate worship? Because it puts on display the work of Christ and the Spirit to unite Jew and Gentile. And that's something the world leaders today can't even do in the Middle East. They still can't get the Jews and the Gentiles together, the Arabs and the Jews. But God's Spirit can do this. And this is what we've seen in the book of Ephesians. God's plan for the fullness of time is to set Christ as head over all things and to unite all things under his headship. Head, one head, unity of all things under his headship. But that's happening today, right? We've seen there's a body with one head and God is uniting things as a representative slice of that larger world that's coming. And so as we live in unity in this body, as we worship together with one voice, we are showing that Jesus Christ has the power to bring that world to pass. 
He is going to do it and he can. He's doing it right now. He is gathering together heaven and earth and Jew and Gentile as one. And our corporate worship puts that on display. So this is why we gather together to worship God. Gathering together to worship God is actually the response that he's worthy of. If he's God of heaven and earth, land and sea and every nation, then why sit at home and worship? If the entire universe is headed towards one throne and everybody gathered around it, then why sit in your house and worship by yourself? Come together and display that he is God alone. Come together and display the unity of the spirit. Set aside your differences, welcome one another so that with one voice you may give glory to God. If corporate worship is significant and weighty then because it proclaims that God alone is God of all the earth and because it manifests the unity of the Spirit, then we would expect each element of corporate worship to show these things. We're going to look at what are we supposed to do when we come together? Are we supposed to have like a drama on the stage? Is that what our worship is supposed to look like on Sunday morning? Are we all supposed to sit around and, and, and knit blankets together? Is, is, that, is that what our worship is supposed to look like? No, no, no. There's certain things that the Spirit of God says, do this when you gather together. Now, if these are the purposes for corporate worship, these two things, then in each one of these elements, we ought to see those two things displayed by our singing, by our attention to the Word. We ought to see displayed that God is God alone. We ought to see the unity of the Spirit. And actually, when you look at the New Testament, you find that that's exactly what each one of these themes, these elements is grounded upon. So let's look at five elements now. The only five that I can find in the New Testament. The first is attention to God's words. And you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. When we gather together, one thing we must do, we must never set this aside. We must give attention to God's words. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13 says this. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, if you're looking at King James, it says this. Until I come, devote yourself to reading. Reading what? Reading where? Who is supposed to be doing the reading? What are we supposed to be reading? I got a lot of books in my library. Does it mean spend a lot of time reading books? Well, let me show you what this reading is here in the context, okay? Look at verse 11. Timothy's told to command and teach these things. That's public. That's not him sitting in his office. That's public. Command and teach. Verse 12. He's told to be an example. That's public too. Verse 13, he's told to devote himself to reading and to exhortation and teaching. Okay, that's public as well. So the whole context here is public. So whatever this reading is, it's got to be public reading. The question is, what's he supposed to be publicly reading? And the answer to that is in verse 13, until I come devote yourselves to public reading, to exhortation and to teaching. On what basis do we exhort and teach? We're teaching what? The doctrines of man? The word of God. Give attention to the public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching of it. Does that make sense? So he's referring to the public reading of scripture. And so when we come together, we must give our attention to the public reading of scripture. Now to this point, we have not, I've not spent significant portions of our Bible study time publicly reading the scripture. But as we over the next month or two 
contemplate gathering together as one body, committing ourselves to one another in church membership. When a local church is born, this is what we've got to devote ourselves to. Public reading of scripture. Why? Because God is God alone. We're not going to devote ourselves to other things because there's only one voice worth listening to. He is God alone. That's where we will devote our attention. To the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. But look at Acts chapter 2. This just confirms this. You probably know this verse off the top of your head. If Timothy only devoted small portions of the worship service to reading the scripture, what would that say about the importance of God's word? But if he gives them a prominent place, if he devotes himself to the public reading of scripture, what does that say about the word? And this is what we find the early church was doing as well. I think it's significant that we find the word devote here in Acts 2 as well. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That doesn't mean they devoted themselves to the teaching that the apostles developed because the apostles are simply teaching the word of God. Instead, it means the apostles taught and everybody that devoted themselves to that as they taught the word. So what does a church devote itself to? What fills its calendar? What do we fill our calendar with as a church? The answer is devotion to the teaching of God's word that the apostles have given us. They devoted themselves and the minister, the pastor is supposed to devote much time in leading the worship services to the public reading of God's word. And the reason for that is because attention to God's word proclaims that he is God alone. There's no great push today to translate the Hindu Vedas, their, their sacred scriptures in Hinduism. There's no great push today to translate that into all the languages of the world. Why? Because Hinduism is a religion practiced by Hindus who all speak Hindi. And so there's no point in translating it into other languages. Because Hindus, Hinduism is a very tribal religion. And yet, there is a great push today to translate the Word of God into all the languages of the earth. Why? Because He's the God of all the earth. And when all of the earth gives attention to His Word, what does that say about Him? That He is God alone. And attention to the Word manifests the unity of the Spirit also. If corporate worship manifests the unity of the Spirit, then we can see how giving attention to God's word, part of corporate worship, manifests that as well. Look, 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 look at what a church looks like. It looks like a lot of people seated together, listening to the voice of one head. Only one person gets to talk in the church. It's Jesus Christ, the head. And we all are joined to him because he is head and heads send signals to the body and the body obeys. And so even the form of the church gathering of one voice proclaiming Christ's word and demands to the body. This is one head, as it were, proclaiming the word to the body. And the body all gets up and does it together. We don't all listen to the scriptures and then go out and do our own thing during the week. We go out and we live under the headship of Christ all together. We all dance to the same tune, as it were, throughout the week. And that shows that there is one head. He has united us all together in one body, and we are acting together because there is one head. Second component is singing. 
We are commanded to sing in the gathering. We'll look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 18. I'm moving really quickly today. And I'm also recording. And here's why I'm moving quickly. Because normally when I write out my sermons in my, my Bible software, it gives me a little note at the bottom that says this sermon will take so many minutes to, to, to preach. So normally it says about 28 minutes and we go about 50. So today when I got, last night, Friday when I got done, it said 40 minutes. So we're thinking an hour unless I can do this. So if we're going too fast, the recording uh, will be, there's a little URL on the back page of the notes there. You can go find it and listen to it again. If we're going too fast. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What will result when people are filled with the Spirit? They will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They will sing and make melody to the Lord with or in their hearts. Depending on how you think that word should be translated. They will give thanks always for everything. Verse 21, they will submit to one another. But verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We, we've noticed that that phrase, one another, refers to what goes on in the local church. Remember, we've seen that a good number of times. So in the local church, we are to address one another in psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs. And I just want to ask three questions here and get some answers. And then we'll move on to the next element, okay? The first is, what are we to sing? And the scripture says we are to address one another in or with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Do you know what a psalm is? Got 150 of them. That's not too hard, right? What is hard is if we're supposed to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we don't have the what in the Psalter. We don't have the music. And so church musicians throughout church history have done this a service of setting many of the psalms to music. And we have the responsibility to sing the psalms. We have the responsibility to sing hymns. Hymns is simply a word for poetry that's addressed to God in psalm that expresses praise to him. So poetic verses set to music, praising God, and we sing them. That's called the singing of hymns. And spiritual songs, other musical expressions. But all of these musical expressions are supposed to be spiritual songs. They must be the product of the work of the Spirit of God. They must be the kind of songs that people filled with the Spirit of God would sing. For being filled with the Spirit, verse 20, is what leads to our addressing one another in spiritual songs. So there's the three things we are to sing, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What is the content of our songs we are to sing? The content of the Psalms, we don't have to guess because you can go read them, find out what they talk about. What's the big emphases? What are they all about? But what about hymns and spiritual songs? What's supposed to be the emphasis, the content? What are we supposed to sing songs about? Is there any direction in Scripture about what kinds of themes we are to major on? And there is because in the New Testament, there are actually several hymns that the first century church apparently was singing. You can turn to Ephesians 1, just back a couple of pages. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to call your attention to another one that you probably have memorized. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And it doesn't appear this way in our English language, but in the Greek, it's clear that the next verses are a poem to be set to music and sung. Who, although he existed in God's very form, did not regard that equality with God as something to be grasped hold of. But he emptied himself all the way to the point of death on a cross, and God responded by highly exalting him, making him Lord of heaven and earth, so that every knee will bow to him. Okay, so that's a hymn text that the early church sung. Question for you, what's the dominant emphasis of that? Jesus Christ, his work, and God's resurrecting power and exaltation. Much about me? Not in that hymn. It's all about God and his work in Jesus Christ. Here's another hymn. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And starting in verse 4 and going down to the end of verse 14 is another hymn. And we know this is a hymn because this one has choruses. You know how our hymns have choruses? This one's got choruses. You can find the first chorus in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. You can find the next chorus in verse 12, to the praise of his glorious grace. You can find the next chorus in verse 14, same chorus. So there's three stanzas and three choruses. So here's the hymn. What's the hymn major on? What's its content? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It talks about things in verse 4 like election. Verse 5, predestination. Verse 5, uh, adoption. Verse 7, redemption. Verse 7, forgiveness of sins. It talks about verse 9, God's plan to make known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 10, it talks to us about his plan to unite all things under Christ's headship on that final eschatological day. How many hymns do you know that we sing that concentrate on the fact that one day God's going to set Christ as head over all things and bring everything under his headship in unity? I can think of one, this is my father's world, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He'll work all things until heaven and earth are one. But that's about as far as I can go to replicating verse 10 in our modern hymnology. But the point is this, Hebrews 1 is all about what God has done. It's all about what he has done in Christ. There's very little in there about, God, I just want to come and offer up my praise to you and I have so much to offer you. It's, God, you have done so much for me in Christ and I bless you for that. I sit humbly and quietly before all that you have done for me. How many of our hymns Praise and worship to God focus on God's work to predestine us. How many of them focus upon the sealing work of the Holy Spirit? How many of them focus our attention on the fact that all of this that God has done is for the praise of his glorious grace? This is the content of the hymns we are to sing. It's supposed to begin again with what God has done. If we're really going to offer to him the responses he's due, We've got to start, well, what's he done? What's he like? Okay, let's offer responses to him based on what he has done and what he is. Third question, to whom do we sing? So we'll go back to Ephesians 5 now. Who is the audience when we sing? Well, God, obviously, because we're told to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we're to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. So obviously we are to sing these hymns of praise to God. These musical compositions are called hymns and psalms and both of which are addressed to God. 
But here we are also told to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The King James says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if you'll notice the last two letters of the word yourselves, you see that there's more than one yourself. So this isn't me singing a song to myself. This is exactly what verse 19 says, addressing one another. That's why the ESV translates it that way. So amongst the congregation, we had to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to address one another. And right here at this point, we see poking through the two significances of corporate worship again. We are to sing our songs of praise to God and to God alone. Why? Because he is God alone. And so when representatives from all the nations of the earth gather on a Sunday morning to sing their praise to God, they are saying, they are testifying, God is God alone. But secondly, we are to sing our songs of praise to God, but address them to one another. Corporate worship manifests the unity of the spirit. We address one another. In other words, we aren't here simply to sing and enjoy listening to our own voices. Now, some of us don't have voices that are worth listening to, and that's okay. But that's the point. The worship is not for my sake. We're told to address God and one another, but not me. It's not for my own enjoyment. It's for their sake. And why do I sing for their sake? Because they need it. And I need them to sing for my sake. Where does that need come from? 1 Corinthians 12, you can't say you don't need the other members of the body because the Spirit put the body together in a relationship of mutual need. So address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Do it together because that is the need of the hour. Together, we sing... We put, a, put away disunifying personal preferences. We receive one another as Christ has received us. We sing with one voice to the glory of God, giving praise to our one head. He is our common pursuit. He is our common love. He has turned us away from our own ways that drug us apart. When you live for yourself, the world splinters into a billion different universes. Every one of them living for itself. When Jesus Christ reorients our loves from ourself to him, we have one head. We are all pursuing one goal. And that means we can all love one another for his sake. And so we come together as one to sing to Christ our head. Third, we have the responsibility when we gather to give. In corporate worship, we give of our financial resources. And let's look at Philippians 1. See this fleshed out for us. Just over a page, at least it's a page in my Bible, Philippians 1. When we gather together, we have the responsibility to give. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. I'm making my prayer with joy. Why does Paul pray with such joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What's he mean by partnership in the gospel? Just turn the page over to chapter 4, verse 15. 
Philippians 4.15. And you, Philippians, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that was when the gospel had first come to you. Paul comes into Macedonia where Philippi is. He brings the gospel. That's the beginning of the gospel amongst the Philippians. You know, Paul says, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And so chapter 1, verse 5, I give thanks with great joy to God because of your partnership with me in the gospel. What's that partnership? It's their partnership of giving and receiving. And actually, Philippians is a thank you letter that Paul wrote to that church because they had sent a financial gift to Paul in his need. And Paul writes to them and says, thank you. Thank you for your participation in the gospel by giving and receiving. And you can see this principle again of, I'm sorry, we're going to get to that. I lost track of my notes. Skipped down too much. What does the word participation conjure up in your mind? What, what does it look like to participate in something? It means we all come together to do it, right? What are we all coming together to do? This is a trick question. In Philippians 1 and Philippians 4, what are they coming together to do? Did they all come together to give? What brought them together? It was the gospel. And in that commonality of the gospel, they gave and received. It went both ways. This is why the local church in Jerusalem in Acts 2, the Spirit comes, He brings together a body, they're baptized, they join the church. What happens next? They start selling what they've got and they bring it and they start sharing with one another. They are sharing because of the gospel that unites Jew and Gentile together. And so as we come and care for the needs of one another in the body, where's the church supposed to spend its money? According to 1 Timothy 5, we have a responsibility to care for elders, uh, well, widows and elders, but widows. The church cares for its own. Why? That participation is because of the gospel. That sharing is because of the gospel. But there's also this. That sharing, that commonality because of the gospel, it means that we all contribute to one goal, the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. Think about it like this. The thing about giving is that we take part of ourselves and pass it to someone else. Okay, so you go out, you earn money by pouring a little bit of your life out. You gave 40 hours of your week this week to earning money. That's 40 hours of you that you'll never get back. And you exchanged that for a paycheck. And now you've got some dollars in exchange for your, your life, your time. The world is hard at work to take their time, their energy, and to turn that into money and to use all of that money for who? Myself. Me exists for me. That make sense? That's the world. And so the money each person possesses is used for a billion different agendas. Everybody's buying TVs for themselves. But Jesus Christ reorients us from our love of self, our seeking our own things. Philippians 2.3, don't look on your own interests. Look on the interests of others. And look on Christ's own interest. The propagation, proclamation of the gospel. 
And so when we come together and we give, it bears witness that the gospel has transformed our loves. We don't love ourselves anymore. We're willing to give away part of myself. Why? Not just to give it away to one other person, but to put it into a community pot, as it were, that is dispersed according to the dictates of Jesus Christ. The church is supposed to spend its money the way that Jesus Christ wants it spent. And so I contribute to one goal, the proclamation and success of Jesus Christ and his gospel and his church. Now, giving in corporate worship is significant then because it manifests the unity of the spirit. And I don't feel like I've developed that well for you, but um, we can chat more about that later if you need to. Got one more, actually two more. We're only going to discuss one this morning and then we'll discuss the last ones, the last one next week. The fourth element of corporate worship, we've got attention to God's word. We've got giving, we've got singing. The fourth one is prayer. And we'll just go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and let's just look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And notice what's next. King James differs a little bit here. Notice what's next. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, comma, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the King James replaces that comma with the word and. And I'm not entirely sure why they do that because the original text does not have an and. So actually, the ESV is translating the original text accurately accurately here. So let's think about what this means then. They devoted themselves... To how many things? The apostles' teaching and fellowship. And the next two, the breaking of bread and prayers, then seem to be the definition of what it means to fellowship. What does it mean to fellowship? It's to gather together and break bread, gather together and pray. So there are two elements here, and fellowship then has two aspects of it that define it. So how many things do they devote themselves to? They devoted themselves to two, and the word fellowship, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship. The word fellowship just means sharing in common. And we have a picture of what that looks like, as I said, in verses 43 through the end of the chapter. They're selling what they've got, and they're, they're fellowshipping together. Everything's in common, common part, Christian communism. So they, they have everything in common in the material world. That's one part of what it means to fellowship. But the other part of what it means to fellowship in verse 42 is to break bread together and to pray together. This means that the breaking of bread that is under consideration in verse 42 is the breaking of bread amongst the congregation. This isn't just having meals in people's houses. This is when they all come together to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That is, to breaking bread together, fellowshipping around the Lord's Supper and fellowshipping together in prayer. Ah, sorry, I lost my place in my notes. So in breaking bread together and in praying together, they were experiencing fellowship. What's it mean to to fellowship? I mean, playing board games together? Sure, that's part of it. What does it mean to fellowship? To fellowship is to come together around something that we hold in common. Jesus Christ, his broken body, his shed blood, and our prayer to him as a result. 
uh, offering up our prayers to him. This is what it means to fellowship. They all then were entering into their prayers together. It was a fellowship in prayer. It was a participation, a commonality in prayer. In other words, corporate prayer is one of the ways then that we show that we are one body. That's what's just happened. They've repented, they've been baptized, they've been added to the church, and they devote themselves to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. Their prayer then is one way that they show that they share Jesus Christ in common. Their prayer then is the way, one way that they show that they are all one body, that they have all been added together to one church. And this is what we see in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 through 20. Again, I say to you, this is a passage on church discipline, so we're talking about the church here, okay? Again, I say to you, if any two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, which two? If any two in the church agree together on what they ask, it will be done for them. When you come together and you agree on what to ask God, it will be done for you. Now think about what that means, okay? Think about what that means. What brings that agreement? Why do you come together and agree to ask him this? If every person in the world had the opportunity to come before God and to ask for one thing, 99% of the time, the people coming to ask would be asking for something for themselves. How do I know that? Just look at church prayer request lists. There's nothing wrong with saying, here's what I need prayer for. That's right. But how do you get together with two people who both want to ask something of God in prayer for themselves? That's two things that they're asking for, right? They don't agree together. How do you get that agreement together to ask God in prayer? What we see in churches is something very beautiful that we don't see in the world. We see another Christian get interested in my needs. And so now we agree together and we take my needs to the Father. And I am not just interested in praying to God for all the benefits I can get for myself. I'm interested in praying to God for the benefits that He needs too. As we come together in a body and we offer up matters that we agree on that shows exactly what Romans chapter 13 says. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, they all do. And so when they come to God in prayer, they come as one suffering body. And in that corporate prayer, for needs that are not directly mine, in that care for the rest of the body, we show fellowship, we show commonality, we show one bodiness in our corporate prayer. When we pray for the needs of people other than just me. And of course, we all come to God People from every nation, language, tribe, tongue. Why? Because in our coming together, it shows something about God. 
He is God alone. We don't pray to a million different gods because there's only one. We all come together to pray to him. And the final element of corporate worship is ordinances, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we will look at those over the next two weeks. Baptism next week and the Lord's Supper the following. And what we're going to see is that the ordinances manifest the unity of the Spirit and proclaim that God alone is Lord over all things, probably to a greater and more explicit degree than anything that we've seen here so far this morning. So I just want to finish with this. When we come together to worship God, we are responding to what he has done. And that requires a specific part of me that we're not really good at using today. And that is this, our memory. You have a good memory? To be able to come in here and sit down and suddenly to, to, to your brain fills up with all the things that you remember from the scriptures of what God is, all the things that he's done for you in Christ in eternity past, all the things that he's done for you at the cross, all the things that he's going to do for you in the future, all the things he did for you this past week, all these benefits, we are to call them to mind and then offer up to God the responses he's due for his work for me. And that requires memory. And that's why Psalm 103 says what it does. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And that means that in preparing for corporate worship, or individual worship for that matter. A large part of that is when we come, whoever is leading the worship has to call those things to our minds. We've got to start off with, look at all the blessings that God's given to us in Christ. Okay, let's respond to him as a result. We've got to start off with that memory. But something you can do to prepare for corporate worship is this. Spend some time remembering. Write it out. What has God done for you? Who is he? Prepare for that so that when you come together to worship the Lord, you have not forgotten his benefits and you then can bless the Lord for all of his benefits. Lord God, thank you for the privilege of corporate worship. This is the reason you have constructed this body. It is for your glory that we as a, a people, a holy nation would show forth the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Lord, at the end of the day, the church, the local church, is not for us. It is for you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a love for Jesus Christ, a remembrance of your benefits, that would allow us to render to you the responses that you are worthy of, that you are due. And we ask that you would give us the joy of that for years to come together, that you would add others to be worshipers of your son with us. Together we may testify that you are God alone and that the spirit of God is great enough to unite together people of every language and tribe, kindred, tongue, people. Together we may all worship you as one with one voice to the glory of God. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.